0: Welcome to the May 15th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. It's just a week late, but I'm excited to share with you my peaches and my pits, or my roses and my thorns, from this year's INSAR. There were more peaches than pits. The pits are actually areas of research that I think are obviously important, but don't get studied enough. And I also hope you all had a nice Mother's Day. If you're the mother of a child, a pet, a daughter, or maybe none of the above you deserve a mimosa or if you took the time to honor a mother who is no longer alive in your life mother's day itself can be the peaches and the pits if you know what i mean you guys will be able to see videos of the plenary sessions for insar online the week of june 5th so i don't want to ruin those for you but the first day was a plenary by Wendy Chung, who is leading SPARC, that big autism database you've heard so much about. She's gonna be doing it from her new job as Chief of the Department of Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. Don't worry, she's still gonna be running Spark, although it will still continue to be funded by the Simons Foundation. In the big scheme, this is good news, as now she has some opportunities at Boston Children's Hospital to work with new partners. It's a win-win for everyone. She explained how Spark works and how they're really starting to describe with the largest database ever, the multitude of conditions that are autism. It was a great introduction to the meeting, the first presentation on the first day, because the theme across the meeting was that autism does not mean the same thing for every person. For some, it's an identity. For some, it's a condition. And others, it's a disorder. It doesn't mean that anyone's right or wrong it doesn't mean that there's one for everyone i also want to add the meeting was held in a convention center so if there are people listening to this podcast who are there that i did not see give me a holler i'm sorry about that i can count the number of people i didn't see but wish i had on both hands and i know you were there the second plenary went international. Gauri Devon from Sangath India, talked about implementing a parent-mediated intervention in India. With 1.4 billion people, there are plenty of people to work in India. They do not have a human resources problem, as she mentioned. So they put community care workers to work. While there are a lot of workers, there are actually very few experts in autism. So training multiple people on an autism intervention was the first foremost hurdle to pass. They tried to do this by one expert showing a group of people a potential solution. Actually, it was probably many people showing many people a solution, but frankly, there are few experts and many workers, so they needed to do group trainings. The care workers were trained to help manage behaviors and improve learning at home. It was child-led, and it was responsive to the child's needs. My thought was if they can do it in India, it can be done anywhere. I won't spoil the presentation. You can go ahead and watch it. The last plenary was from the totally famous, absolutely wonderful, and longstanding expert Patricia Howland from King's College London, who talked about adulthood. Now, why is Patricia Howland an expert? Well, she has been studying autism from birth to adulthood for many decades and has seen kids grow up to be adults. She's had the unique opportunity to use longitudinal studies to address what happens to autistic kids as they get older. Unfortunately, she mentioned the data is not necessarily consistent because, well, there haven't been enough studies. The studies are each designed differently, and there's not enough people in each studies. One thing she was wondering was, could you compare females versus males? Now, unfortunately, that's a really tricky question because there's so few females in studies. Two potential issues she mentioned that show some conflicting evidence is, do people with autism show an exacerbated or protective cognitive and mental health profile compared to those who don't have autism? There's been some evidence on either side, so we need some more studies. Also, who defines what's a good quality of life for adults as they age? And for whom, or is that whom? I mean, having gainful employment may be important to some people, but having two friends or participating in one activity outside the home may be a good quality of life for someone else. We need more precise quality of life determinations. But she had all sorts of good questions that needed to be answered. I will say that basic biology and science took a back seat this year, There were some talks about genetics, but they were mostly about problems in studying genetics. For some reason, the study of genetics has become a dirty word, or genetics has become a dirty word, I should say. It's become offensive and misinterpreted as a pathway to eugenics. There was a roundtable about this topic at the meeting this year. A group of neurodiverse autistics discussed their feelings that genetics will only lead to people with autism being eliminated. I'm going to say just one thing about that topic. Stop saying that. If we're going to be a diverse community, we have to embrace diverse ideas and we have to change that narrative that science is only directed to do one particular thing. The argument that genetics causes women to test prenatally and abort their fetuses is being used as a justification for overturning Roe v. Wade. It's a little bit responsible and very misogynistic to assume that women don't take the matter of having a child seriously. There are obviously multiple decisions that go into having an abortion. If you don't believe me about this issue of the topic being used to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to Twitter. Lawmakers are parroting that line, claiming the disability community is worried about being eliminated so nobody should have an abortion, period. They've been pulling line for line, word for word, some of the narratives about genetics leading to eugenics and abortion. There is so much to be learned from the field of genetics. We actually have biological evidence that autism is in fact biologically diverse from genetic studies. We can be careful about how genetics is used, but please stop trying to eliminate fields of research altogether and stop science from being done totally. The same with suicide. One person on the panel said that the attitude about the word disorder and the use of the word disorder was driving people with autism to take their own lives. Now, as someone who's been affected by suicide personally, please stop that. We need to address suicide in the autism community. The way we need to do that is to understand it, not blame it on one thing. Otherwise, all the other things won't be addressed. And people will think that suicide is due to one thing and not multifactorial and not complex. Now I learned a lot from this panel, but we need to work together to address the concerns in the community instead of coming from a place of fear and anger. My fear is that the community of autistic people that are against genetic research feel that they're speaking for the entire community, not parents, not clinicians, not other people themselves, but this small group of autistic people who don't want genetics research to be done. It's always construed of all people with autism that don't approve of genetics research. In fact, there were studies conducted in the Netherlands that said that 94% of people with autism or autistic adults saw the value in genetics research. And you actually don't have to go any farther than INSAR to hear one panel that described the importance of genetics. There was just this one panel. Stefan Sander described that genetics is a cause of autism. And it's not so simple as one gene versus another gene. Of course, there are genes that are strongly associated with autism, but some of the newer studies that are coming out are focusing on what is known as transcription factors. These are genes that regulate the function of other genes. Does this sound complicated? Well, it is. And that's why it's unlikely that there's going to be a prenatal genetic test for autism for most cases of autism. Transcription factor expression, as he describes, ebbs and flows during prenatal times. Different ones are found on different cell types. One thing they have in common is they bind to the promoter region of a gene, turning on and turning off gene expression at different times during prenatal development. Gene expression itself changes during prenatal development. They can determine cell fate, and when you turn them on and off, they might cause cell death and then an increase in glia cells, which may explain some of the molecular processes in autism. These studies show us how genes affect the overall phenotype and the developmental course of autism from conception. There are, yes, genes which are called rare syndromic forms of autism, and I'll talk about those later, and how people are understanding those rare genetic forms of autism, but for the most part The genes involved in autism are so many in such a combination that really looking at a prenatal test is really, really far away. And one thing that people are always wondering about is girls. And one way you can understand girls with autism or assigned females at birth with autism is looking at genetics. Genetics. Multiple studies are now supporting the female protective effect with both a higher burden of rare genes and common genes associated with autism in autistic females and also non-diagnosed family members like mothers and sisters. So I've reported on this before, but these results and these findings also include a new South Korean study, which has replicated other studies, which include samples from around the world. So now this isn't just based on culture, it isn't just based on diagnosis, it's based on biology. Females may be better able to tolerate known genetic mutations. They're more resilient. Hell, I could have told you females are more resilient. But another session also focused on not just the biology, but the female profile in behavior. We don't really know if there is one or not, but people are looking at it. Girls with autism are diagnosed later and tend to have a lower IQ, but one group of girls or boys, for that matter, hasn't really been studied and can tell us a lot about why females are diagnosed less often. This is a smallish group that either showed concerns early in life, but then didn't meet autism criteria at school age, or they met au- autism criteria in toddlerhood, but then kind of dropped the diagnosis in a Adulthood or in adolescence. They just didn't meet that diagnostic threshold anymore. They just seemed to teeter around that line of autism, no autism. It seems as though females who no longer met diagnosis at school age had more problems in peer relationships than boys. Those that missed the early diagnosis early on, but then had a diagnosis later, had better language and less pronounced autism features. Those females that did have a clear autism diagnosis showed poor language ability. So when we talk about the female protective effect, this may be part of it. This means we need to do a better job diagnosing, supporting females, and especially understanding language and social communication in those females. But maybe the importance of genetics research is not being clear, or it's being misunderstood as an all or nothing or that there's some misinterpretation that research is against people with autism. It's not up to the autism community to change their minds. It's up to the research community, and that includes the community of autistic researchers, to show that not everything is black and white, and that things include a broad range of perspectives so that science benefits the larger community. How do we work with the autistic community and the autistic researcher community to conduct science that's important, but at the same time communicates the importance of the science? The key is to ensure that the community is involved from the very beginning. An advocate led a panel that talked about what should be done and not done in genetics research using a UK study called Spectrum 10K as an example. After backlash and concerns about the study design and the principal investigators, This study went back to the drawing board and did something really important. They created and documented a new process, which they shared at INSAR, about how to co-create a research study using the autistic, autistic community and ensure that the research will help that autistic community. Not just the community that believes in genetics research, but the community that's fearful of it. Well, how do you do that? God, everybody wants to know that. Well, the person that led the consultation on it shared what she learned. While there's no specific recipe, including the autistic community in studies should be a mandate and should be based on the following principles. First, trustworthiness. Everything should be transparent, clear, and balanced. It should also be autistic-led and based on community priorities, broad community priorities, diverse community priorities, and not just the loudest voices on Twitter. There should also be a diversity of voices from the autistic community, and the method should be accessible. For the record, there should be optimality in the balance of online meetings and in-person meetings. In-person meetings are great, but some people just can't leave the house, or it takes a long time to get to meetings, or they just flat out get anxious so they don't go. Accessibility means physical and language accommodations like type to text. Finally, you need to make sure that as the result of your research, something gets done as a part of this process and not just talked about. Things should be in a easy to read format. I wanna thank the speaker for her tips because I'm gonna start using them from now on. Autistic people also need to get paid for their time. I don't have an answer about how to do this all the time, but this is exactly what the ASF accelerator mechanism is designed to do. If we can speed up the course of research by including autistic researchers in a consultation ahead of time, do it. Apply for some money to pay autistic adults to come to meetings or even just hold a meeting within the community. That's what the accelerator mechanism is for. Finally, I'd like to share some information about a great panel that I went to. I was actually on as a discussant, but I'm not biased. A lot of people said this panel was fantastic, and I didn't really do anything about the content. That was all the speakers, and that's a shout out to Carol Wilkinson at Boston Children's for putting it together. It was titled, Breaking Down Barriers to Research for Children with Genetic Disorders, Intellectual Disability, or Communication Challenges. The goal of the session was to share what different research groups were doing to improve participation in research, and ensure families were able to complete the assessments needed to help their children. Intellectual disability and a lack of spoken language is problematic for many reasons, and these individuals are often left out of research studies, making those findings not even applicable to the entire spectrum of those affected with an autism diagnosis. The chair, Carol Wilkinson, again from Boston Children's Hospital, used a Swiss cheese analogy in terms of recruitment and retention and research. So if you think about a block of Swiss cheese, can you go from one side to the other in just one hole? Probably not. So first, they may get through a hole with the issue of behavioral assessments, but then they're not able to complete the biological assays. So then the hole has ended. Or they can't even get to the biological assessments or the behavioral assays first, so they're blocked from even entering a study. Or the biological assessments can be done, but then they can't collect IQ. It's constantly like a stop and start, a stop and start of different places where people can enter, but then they can't continue. So what did the participants in this panel learn? First, be flexible. Some kids have challenging behaviors. Most of them have sensory issues. You can't use the same exact protocol with every kid. Also, because people are so intellectually disabled, you can't administer the tests in the usual way. You may have to use different tests for things like IQ. For example, use a test meant for toddlers even if the person is an adult. You should also look at how far away the developmental ratio is from the chronological age, and that should be a consistent metric. You can start on earlier questions for kids if those still apply. So if the child is still not potty trained, Start there, and don't assume that just because they're 20, they will be. Also, there may be some questions that are just not applicable. Skip them. Does a child count to 10? No. Skip the al- sing the alphabet? No. Skip that set of questions. You also have to meet them where they're at. Caitlin Hudock from the University of South Carolina talked about how she got in her car and drove around the country during COVID to collect EEG data from kids with rare genetic disorders including a disorder called GRIN2B, because obviously during COVID parents couldn't travel. But this may not just be specific to COVID. Parents with kids with rare genetic disorders have a problem traveling period. They may not be able to travel to a research study or even a family meeting of a rare genetic disorder. It's really sad, but we need to include these families in research too. So she spent 92 days on the road circling the US, driving from house to house, spending a couple hours with each family to collect the data in a naturalistic setting where the child was most comfortable. The third, use a personalized approach. Talk to the parents ahead of time and get as much information as possible. What's their favorite toy? What's their favorite game? What's their favorite snack? This improves not just the ability for the family to participate, but the quality of the data so their time is not wasted. As age increases, it becomes harder to collect the data And you may have to use some data analytic tools to eliminate things like effects of movement and wiggling when they're doing a brain scan. The last one is plan for remote. While Dr. Hudak did the on the road again model as a homage to Willie Nelson, this isn't always feasible. Dr. Karen Chanowski completed a bunch of language, parent-child interactions, and motor tasks over Zoom. She used something that protected everyone's privacy. And she was able to collect high quality language measures using a free downloadable app that parents could use so that they could include speech production, including even if it was just syllables. And the video and audio worked well enough that it was almost like being in person. While I hesitate to recommend that all people with autism see a clinician online all the time, research studies should be prepared for remote if that's possible. Now clearly this wasn't all that happened at INSAR. The week of June 5th, the keynote speaker videos will be posted on the INSAR website and we'll circulate that notification on social media. Each presentation was about 45 minutes, so I hope you get to watch all three. Don't rely on that stupid summary I just gave. You may get something out of it that I missed. So the main takeaways here, everyone with autism is different, genetically, sociologically, demographically. What's true in one person, even one autistic person, is not true of another. Everyone's voice matters, and we should be doing a better job at including all of these voices in scientific research, not just the loudest voices. The second, early intervention. In countries like India, where there's little services, they still found a way to make it work. They train community healthcare care providers on a child-led, parent-mediated intervention. Parents liked it, and kids responded. We should be using this model elsewhere, even in the United States, in low-resource settings. Adults? Well, what we've been doing hasn't been working. A mix of designs, approaches, populations with little commonalities have led to differing results. We still need multiple approaches, but people with autism as they age don't have nearly the amount of information about them as young children, and that should change. Scientists, if you want to recruit into studies, be flexible, be mobile, be remote, be personalized to each person's individual needs. This may apply to those with intellectual disability and minimal verbal ability, but really it should apply to everyone. Five, stop saying genetics is meant to obliterate the community of autistic. Thanks to genetics, we have a better sense of the unique and wonderful brains that autistic people have. We know why females are not diagnosed as often, and we know better therapeutics that may help some people. Not everyone, but some people. And last, girls are underserved. They're an underserved community in autism that needs more research, and it isn't just an autism, no autism thing. It's a continuum of needs, challenges, and impairments that lead to a diagnosis that may need a different approach. Thank you for listening this week, and again, please pay attention to the June 5th release of the plenary sessions. I think you're really going to enjoy them. They're not too in the weeds. They're very easy to understand and they've all got some really great videos included in them. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.